Last week, you met the players. We've got Paul, the apostle, who is our author. We have Christians of every stripe who are the recipients. Both of those, well, one's a person, one's a group, are dependent upon and built up by Jesus, who is our Savior. So to quote the late night infomercials, but wait, there's more. There's always more. And if you act now, you can get, you know, two for the price of one, plus shipping and handling, and how that all goes. Today begins the walkthrough. The why of the letter, which, again, part of the fun of going through something like Romans is, you will not find a more systematic theology in your Bible. Just Paul sat down and was like, okay, how do I make this make sense? And it's probably part of the reason why a lot of his prison epistles are shorter. One, he was in prison while he's dictating them, but he's dictating a bunch of letters, which equal the length of Romans. But I think, two, Romans is circulating and spreading. Why do I have to reinvent the wheel? You've already got part of this. I can just give you the Reader's Digest version and know you'll be reminded of the other stuff that I said. So Paul lays out this theology, and this is, the, this is his first letter that didn't have an official occasion behind it. We've mentioned before that he's already written uh, Galatians as well as Thessalonians and the Corinthian letters. All five of those letters are written because there is something going on. He's writing to refute the Judaizing heresy of Galatians. He's writing because of problems in the Thessalonian church. He's writing because of the myriad of problems in the church at Corinth. Romans is the first time he just gets to sit down and go, I just want to explain something to people. I just want to teach. And you can, you can almost feel like as you're reading through it, like he's enjoying going through this, answering the objections. This is Paul in his element, just getting everything out of his brain, which is probably quite a bit. So this begins right here in verse 8 after the simple introduction. We shall dive right in. Sound fun? All right. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is such good news. You know, this is probably, again, why Paul is so happy to write this letter. This is the first time he gets to write to one of these churches, and it's not like, all right, I need to remind you to stop being nitwits about everything. (laughs) This is just like, you guys are doing so good, and you're just crushing it, and people are telling me how good you're doing, and it just, I'm so happy, and I just can't stand it anymore. That's how I feel when I'm reading this first chapter. And again, if you've dealt with some of the churches I've dealt with, I I feel you, Paul. Like, I'm right here with you. I get it. You're just like, you mean you guys are happy and you like each other and nobody's throwing things in meetings? (gasps) Can I join? (laughs) Now, this is, all kidding aside, an excellent start by the Romans. Why is it an excellent start? Well, because, again, who's starting this church? Who's founding this church? And who's building this church? James 1. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Paul can celebrate and he can thank God for them because God has built them, God has established them, God has strengthened them, and God has held them. And by the way, he's done that in an area you wouldn't expect. I mean, when we went through Acts on Wednesday night, we talked about the Corinthian church. Like, planting a church in Corinth would be, like, worse than trying to plant a church on the Strip in Las Vegas. Planting a church in Rome would be like trying to plant a church two blocks from Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Like, what could possibly go wrong? You know, you got people taking bribes on the corner. You got a capricious emperor who might just decide, hey, you know what? You know what we should do today? Let's deport half your people tomorrow. That'll be fun, won't it? And people are like, what what do you mean? What? No, wait. I mean, Claudius did that. Jews out of Rome. And again, while that'd be hard to enforce, it'd be really easy to get the prominent ones. You know, the ones that are leading synagogues, the ones that are leading churches, the ones that 
owned businesses. These are the people that had founded the church in Rome, and all of a sudden, they're gone. Your leadership is gone. Half your congregation is gone. Your connection to the Old Testament and its understanding is in many instances just gone. And in the midst of that, they're doing well. And people are talking about how well they're doing and how grounded this church is. Again, if you're Paul, this is like, <laughs> I don't have to yell at somebody in, in text, which that's hard to do. Like, I can't be the only person that struggles with that where you try to send an email or a text to somebody and then you read it and go, does that sound like I'm angry? Because I'm not angry. Does that sound... Or, or maybe it's like, no, I am angry. Does that sound like I'm angry enough, but I don't want to be too angry? <laughs> I'm just going to call them. It'll be easier if I just call them, and then they don't answer the phone, and then you send the text anyway, and it's annoying. So who knows? So this is the first thing. This is very good. Now, Paul continues, verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Why does Paul pray for these people? He's never met them. He doesn't know them. He's not taught them. He has some connection to some of the people that they know. Well, this is part of your first lesson, and it piggybacks on our trivia question that we had this morning. These are his people. I mean, these are his people. He's never met them. He doesn't know them. He just knows that they're Christians persevering in faith. Therefore, they're his. Matthew 12. While Jesus was speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside, speaking, seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak to you. We, just, we were just told that by Matthew. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? You know that went over real well with Mary, right? She was just like, oh, that boy of mine. <laughs> And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I said this before, I'm going to say it again. I will die upon this hill, and there aren't many hills I'm dying on, but I'm dying on this one. You should have more in common with the Christian on the other side of the world than you do with the pagan down the street. If you don't, too much of who you are and how you identify yourself in the world is tied up in your culture. I got really bad news for most of our culture. <laughs> it is not defined by biblical things. Your culture may be defined biblically, but it's never defined by the Bible verses you want. It's always defined by the Bible verses like uh, Judges 21, and there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or it's defined by verses like, you know, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Yeah, our culture is defined by that many times, but not the ones that we like, where we are being built up and seeking after good things and setting our eyes on the places where Christ is seated or where we have a cloud of witnesses. We're never, our cultures are very rarely described by those things. If your life is defined by the culture around you, stop, repent, return to Christ. Guess what you just found? You found your sin. You found your idol. What do we get to do with it? <laughs> Kill it with fire and then move on with your Christian walk. Now, beyond Paul, this why do we read this? Why do we care if Paul prayed for these people? Well, remember, if they were Paul's people, and they are Paul's people because of his connection to Christ, then that means that they are also our people. This is part of the reminder of how the gospel puts people together and the thing to which we are hoping for. <laughs> and suddenly the natives have gone restless. <laughs> it's okay. They're four and five. It'll be fine. 
These are our people. This is what we long for. This is the fulfillment in action of things like Revelation 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Why? Because ultimately, what makes us a people? What makes them a people? Things like John 1. As many as received him, talking about Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, Paul longs for these people because they are his people. He prays for these people because they are his people. But that apostolic push is still strong, hence verse 10. So he's making mention, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps, now at least by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. We will come back to this idea about Paul traveling very, very quickly, so I'm not going to spend any time on it. The Middle clause here is a good little reminder for the rest of this book. This is a major theme of the book of Romans. Paul wants to go see the Romans. Who's in charge of that? God is. Guess who's aware of that? Paul is. If you try to read the book of Romans without a solid understanding that Paul is writing from the perspective that God is in control of all of the things that are going on, then you will misunderstand the book and you will make a hash of how you understand your life. This is just one of those little things. Paul would like to do it. Paul's job as an apostle is to go talk to these people and to instruct everyone he can find. But at the end of the day, who's got to get him there? God does. And if God doesn't get him there, he's not going to get there. And that means Paul has to trust what else? that God will get someone else there. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why you should actually be able to rejoice in things like the book of Acts. People get bogged down because it's all narrative and it's history and they can't make sense of it. Just rejoice that the fact that the apostles are having to go out at the beginning and do all of this work. Peter speaks at Pentecost. When the Samaritans receive Christ, the apostles have to go up to Samaria. When they've got to send somebody off to Caesarea, they've got to send one of the apostles. In. And then all of a sudden, what's going to happen as the gospel spreads outside of Jerusalem and Judea and out of the, the, the small little confines of Israel? I mean, how far can you spread 12 apostles? I mean, how many churches can they visit? How much ground can they cover? The answer is not, not much. Very quickly, you see churches sending out missionaries. You see churches sending out emissaries. You see other people in the church checking on things and instructing. In other words, the gospel doing what it's supposed to do. Are the apostles supposed to sit there and be like, we're the apostles. We will go out and all of you people will listen to us. I mean, that may come with it, but at the end of the day, their job is to do what? To go forth and make disciples. Disciples should then be able to do what? Make disciples and instruct in the gospel spread organically, person to person, as it was always meant to. That work begins in Acts and it continues on. I mean, Paul's rejoicing for this church he hasn't met. Someone planted it. Someone instructed it. Someone built it up. Someone has done a great job with these people. Paul would like to rejoice in that and and build in with that. And that's, by the way, what happens next in verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established... That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Notice this isn't, I'm the apostle, I want to show up so I can make sure things are going like they're supposed to be. So I can set you people straight and keep everything in line. No, this is, 
God has built you. God has established you. And I rejoice. I want to show up. I want to teach. And I want to see your faith and see your discipleship and rejoice in your Bible knowledge and all of these things. This goes both ways. I had this, but I don't know if you could call it an argument years ago. There are times in life when, you know, the, 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 there is a great blessing to the way my memory works, and then there are times there is a great curse to the way my memory works, because I'm not kidding you when I tell you that I will be sitting there when it's quiet, and all of a sudden I'm remembering a conversation from 2005. Yeah, and it's like, why? Why? Yes, I know. I know I said a dumb thing in that conversation. Why do I have to relive that every Tuesday? Why? Why do I have to relive the, the stupid thing that I did in 2011? Okay. And believe me, there are times when I say a dumb thing, and I know I've said a dumb thing, and I can immediately recognize, oh no, 10 years from now, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be remembering that dumb thing. So that's a curse. The blessing is there are times when I can remember the, the times when it actually was supposed to go right. So I had a deacon in a church ask me, not here, not here. And I had a deacon in church ask me, he's like, so what were the goals for ministry? And I was like, well, I want to make disciples and get you to where your Bible knowledge is increasing and you can start to understand your Bible better. This is like the main thrust of what I want to do in ministry. And he's like, well, if we do that and we're good enough that, and we know the Bible and we can start doing what you do, why would you need to stick around? And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So like, you're afraid that I'm going to teach you so well that you're going to be so knowledgeable that I'm going to need to move on to teach other people? Stop and understand this. You mean to tell me that I'm going to have a church full of people that know their Bible and understand their Bible and want me to teach them the Bible so that they can understand it even better and keep growing, and you think I'm going to leave these people? Like, so I can go fight with somebody else who doesn't understand the Bible? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> I had a friend of mine, he's like, somewhere there's a place where, the, where church is not a fight. I'm like, have fun with that idea. And I hope you find it one day, because so far I haven't. Now, to be honest with you, you guys are awesome, so don't change, okay? Just, don't, just keep getting better. Sound good? Okay. But I mean, that's what Paul is talking about. Don't do that. That's what Paul is talking about here. He wants to go and rejoice. He wants to teach and proclaim. And they're going to sit there and understand, you know, like, oh, this is very interesting. Keep talking as more. Yes, we understand that. Now, what about, and they're going to ask questions and he's going to delight in giving them answers. And who's going to leave happy? Everybody. The apostle's going to teach. The apostle's going to rejoice. They're going to grow. They're going to rejoice. And everybody's going to be in an excellent mood. This is how church is supposed to function. Why will it function like this? Because of their great faith, because of Paul's great faith. They're anchored and built upon the right thing. This is what I kept explaining from last week and the understanding that we were trying to build as we went through Ecclesiastes. You have to build your foundation rightly upon Christ and what he has done so that you see the rest of the world in light of where you're standing. If you do it the other way, watch out, we're coming around. What ends up happening is you change the foundation you're building your life on to try to align with the rest of the world. This is why I tell you, you should have more in common with the Christian on the other side of the world and you do the pagan down the street. Because if you look like the world around you and your life is built on the culture that is around you, you will change the way you see scripture. Now, by the way, looking at the world around you, changing that foundation and then allowing that to influence how you understand the Bible. Do you think there might be a Bible verse that I have that would summarize what that would look like? Anybody, th anybody thinking the same thing I'm thinking? If you are, I'm sorry. It would look a lot like, did God really say? It's the original lie. It's the original challenge. You have a command from God. Don't do that. Don't eat the fruit. Got it. We can do this. Like, imagine if that was your life. Hey, hey live, rejoice, worship, develop all of those things. Just don't eat the fruit. How easy is that? 
But did God really say? And then the lie comes in. No, 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 God really didn't say that. Well, you know. And what happens? Seeing that it was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and that it was good to make one wise. No, 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 no. In other words, I bought into the lie. I looked, at, I looked at the commands of Scripture. I looked at the commands of God through the lens of what I thought the world should be. I built my life on shifting sand. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, this is, this is the warning. This is why, again, build your foundation rightly. Rejoice in the things that are good. Rejoice in the things that are pleasing to Christ. Set your eyes higher. This is what Peter talks about. 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Set your hopes on Christ. Rejoice in the work and recognize that the work is a joy because that's the work that you have been given. This is why I tell you to enjoy the fight against your sin. See, we look at sin and be like, oh my goodness. You do what I do. You remember that stupid conversation from 2005 and you're like, oh my goodness, why was I such a doofus? And you look at your sin and go, oh my goodness, why? I get that. Rejoice. You care. You care that that sin exists. You care that it has influence over you. You are worried about it. This is good news. I've told you before, does the pagan who does not know Christ care about his sin? No. No. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You can summarize that Bible verse in a modern phrase. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Or as the kids say, YOLO. (laughs) You only live once, right? We're only going around the sun, you know, only going around one time, so do whatever. No, 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 no. That's the lie of the world. You care about your sin. You care that it is an affront to Christ. You care that it leads you astray. Rejoice in that and rejoice in the fact that you get to go to do the hard work of killing it because you have been aided by the Spirit, you have been powered by God, and He will see you through. This is your joy in the fight. You get to actually rejoice in the fight and long for how it will go because it will be a victorious battle for you. This is part of your joy in Christ. What the world would define as lunacy. You mean you're going to deny yourself something that you want? You're going to tell yourself that something that the world has said is good is bad? Yes, because I'm living for something that is higher, for something that is greater, for a kingdom that is not yet realized. And because of that, I see it rightly. You see it wrongly, and I can go to war. That's part of the encouragement, just the day-to-day living of life and recognizing that that is where Christ has you and is upholding you and pulling you through. Let's continue, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. I'm going to pause real quick right there. Why? Well, the aforementioned mutual blessings that Paul wants to receive. And again, never forget, Paul is what? What's Paul's job description? Like, what's the title? Apostle. Paul the Apostle. Apostles do what again? Things like Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Paul's specific job description, Acts 9. The Lord said he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. 
So Paul wants to talk to which people? All of them. And where are these people? Yes. <laughs> Paul wants to go where to talk to them? Yes. He has got frequent flyer miles. Well, there gets to be frequent sailor miles in this one. You know, you know, you la di da. You get. To, you don't have to. They're not rowing at this point as much as they were. It's one of those you know quirks. You got to remember that even at this time, most of these ocean-going vessels are still like really big rowboats which is just horrifying to think about. Because remember, there's no gunpowder. So when you, you ever think about old naval battles during this time in history, they're not, it's not like what you imagine with pirate movies, you know, with sails and cannons. There's just basically steel plating at the front and naval battles are, we row against you and see if we can broadside you and ram into you hard enough to sink you. <laughs> um, imagine like that's your job. You're like, we're just going to row really fast and hit those guys over there. Uh, Captain, sir... What happens if, if in hitting those guys over there, something on our boat breaks too? You can swim, right? Gotcha. <laughs> Hit them really hard so we don't break, you know? <laughs> yeah. This, this is a weird little world, and yet it's so fascinating that that's how they traveled around and that Paul is like, I'm going to go from Jerusalem, and then I'm going to go to Spain, and guys end up in England, and people end up in Africa, and other disciples end up somewhere up in Russia, and people end up in India. It's like... It's just mind-boggling to me, the travel for the time period, and yet it's the world that they lived in. <laughs> but Paul's continuing, so I have often planned to come you and have come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Again, that little parentheses part, that's not added by somebody else, that's Paul putting that in there, have been prevented so far. Again, you want to understand the rest of this book. There are going to be times when you are going to need this lesson. And I'm going to try to remember to hearken back to this. You have to remember your place in this world. James 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a place. Spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, did James just tell you never to plan? No, no. But he told you to plan how? With God in mind. Always recognizing that as you plan, as you battle, as you live your life, you do so with the knowledge that it is God who rules and reigns and runs things. And I needed one more R to have really, you know, really, really good Baptist alliteration, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rejoice in that one. And always remember, by the way, that's not just a New Testament idea, because all of your New Testament ideas are built on what? Old Testament ideas, things like Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in some of your ways, no, 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 in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Or you can have the summation of the song from Ecclesiastes 3. God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet so that man will not find out the work of God from beginning to the end. Remember, that's after the turn, turn, turn. Who has set eternity in your heart? God. Who has made everything appropriate? God. Always remember the lesson from that chapter, that if there is an appointed time, what had to happen first? In order to have an appointment, you have to have... An appointee. <laughs> like, does your phone just randomly like tell you, like, hey, Dave is coming over tomorrow? 
Like, just, just Google Calendar, just pop and be like, hey, you know, something's happening tomorrow. No, you have to do what? You have to actually put the event in. That's why if you're like me, you're like, when someone tells you something, hold up, hold up. It has to go in the calendar because if it is not in the calendar, it does not exist because you do not trust the wet matter in between these two ears to remember these things. It's got to go into the calendar so that the calendar can remember because Google doesn't forget anything. Google sees all, Google knows all, Google tells all. <laughs> and by the way, if you think I'm kidding about that, Jod and I were trying to figure out where exactly we were in New, in New Orleans when we were at the convention. And I hit the little Google map button. You know how it brings you a little blue dot in? Well, I hit the little, the little button to find the little blue dot. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the Google Maps thing tells me, we're having a hard time pinpointing your location. Use your camera to take a picture of your surroundings so we can find you better. And I'm like, okay. So allow to take a picture now. The camera pops up. I hold it up into the, to the storefront in front of me. It screenshots the, um, the awning of the store. As soon as I put my phone down, Google has the blue dot exactly where I'm standing. I'm like, that's borderline horrifying <laughs> that Google can take a picture of an awning. But like, oh yeah, we know where that is. We got him. We got him. We... <laughs> yeah. Skynet's like this close. They're going to be sending Arnold back in a time machine, you know. We're in trouble now. <laughs> hey, remember, 88 miles an hour to get out of here, right? You know, when I was a kid, I thought that was really fast, and then I got a driver's license, and I'm like, not impressed. <laughs> it is what it is. Verse 14. I am under obligation. Pause right there. Obligation, Paul? Yes. Yes, he is. 1 Corinthians 9. I have used none of these things. He's talking about his advantages, his, his uh, rights in life. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done for my case. But for, I'm sorry, for it would be better for me to die than, make, than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so that as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul didn't have a choice here. He's Jeremiah. I don't want to preach, but if I don't preach, it's like fire in my bones and I ache. It's, it's kind of like me whenever somebody says something that's wrong about scripture and I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to have this argument. I'm not going to have this argument. And Cameron's looking at me as I'm just sitting there chewing my own tongue off so I don't have to say anything. No, 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 don't do it, don't do it. It just can't be done. And if you want the Reader's Digest version of this obligation, Romans 1.1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He doesn't get a choice in this. By the way, Christian, you're really bad news for you. You don't either. <laughs> You're in. This is, look, you got the warnings up front. Remember the, 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 the parable from Luke? No one builds a house without first doing what? Counting the cost. No one goes into battle first without doing what? Counting. How many guys do they have over there and how many guys do we have over here? I mean, would you follow a general? General, we got to go fight them. We got to fight those guys tomorrow. How many people do they have? I don't know. Do they have more than us? Probably. Do you know how many? Not really. We got eight. Is that enough? Hope so. You going to battle tomorrow? <laughs> You're going to disappear during like the midnight watch. <laughs> be like, because that would be foolish. That would be stupid. This is the warning of the gospel. What are you signing up for? You're not just signing up for willy-nilly to live how you like. We warned you of this earlier. This is the warning of Christ. You're a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin or you are now a slave to God. 
Now, I got news for you. God's terms are a lot better than sin's. Sin is like, here's what I'll give you. I'll give you everything you want. You will hate it. Be miserable, die, and be judged by God. Who's in? (laughs) And see, when you put it that way, everybody should say what to that deal. Yeah, no, I'm good. And yet, what do we do, humans? Ooh, because what's the lie? Well, maybe this will make me happy. Okay, well, maybe this will make me happy. Uh, maybe this will make... Uh, 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 uh. And next thing you know, you've gone 20, 30 years, and what made you happy? Exactly. Scripture tells you you'll battle for the rest of your life. God's terms are you will surrender yourself. I will lead you sometimes where you do not want to go, and you will have joy in all of it. And you go, I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. And yet, Christian, how's it going so far? This is why I tell you, you can rejoice in the fight because this is the work that God has given you. So yes, there may be some obligation. Yes, you are a slave of God, but that's way, way better than being a slave of sin. This at least doesn't lead to the judgment of God. That's always a plus, right? Now, who is he under obligation to? Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. All right. Don't read too much into that. Paul's not being insulting. That's just the way you refer to everybody. This just covers everyone. Because remember, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. And you know what the test is, right? Yeah. Sweet Caroline. See, all of you Neil Diamond people finished it off. All of you non-Neil Diamond people just looked around with disgust at everyone else. <laughs> yeah, you, you did your Greta Thunberg. How dare you? No. Greeks and barbarians would have been a way of referring to everyone. Those are simply Gentiles that are educated versus Gentiles that are uneducated. This goes all the way back to the Roman period, to the early Roman founding when Rome was still a republic. The barbarian languages to the Greeks and to the Romans just sounds like bar, 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 because it's their Germanic languages. You ever be honest? You ever listen to Germans talk? What's it sound like? Yeah, Fig Newtons. Dusseldorf. What's that video? If you've never seen it, go look up the like angry Germans. Because have you ever met someone speaking German who didn't sound angry? Like, if you get a man's voice speaking in German, I'm like, I'm sorry. I was just telling you how pretty the butterflies were, but why were you yelling at me? <laughs> German is one of those languages, and, and ancient German was worse. It's, it's very heavy and meted out, and all of those peoples above the Greek and Roman empires are basically descended from some sort of Germanic tribe. So they referred to them as barbarians because to their educated ears, their language is just sounding like... So if you were educated, you would learn Greek, and you would be sophisticated. And even if you were a barbarian originally, you would now be an educated barbarian, and you would just be a Gentile who knows something as opposed to the Gentiles who just, you know, mumbled everybody, apparently. So Greeks and barbarians are just Gentiles who are educated or not educated. That would pretty much be all the Gentiles. Foolish and the wise are simple. You either got something figured out or you got nothing figured out. That would pretty much cover, pretty much cover who? Everybody. So Paul is under obligation to all the people. And by the way, what do all those people need? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. What's the apostle's job? To go, to be a witness to the work of Christ. To who? To everybody he can talk to. So this is Paul's obligation. Verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I mean, this 
This is what the man does. He's seeking out people to hear the gospel wherever they may be, wherever he has to go. If you go back to things like 1 Corinthians 9, Paul continued where we left off earlier. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being under the law. Not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul's only got one way of looking at things of life. He doesn't care about your culture. He doesn't care about your language. He cares about Jesus. That's what matters. That's his foundation. That's his life. And by the way, part of the reason why he wants to go to Rome is because Paul understands the reality of his world. And the reality of the world is that it's not necessarily a nice place. And it's not a place that you can count on. So... If you're following along at home, you're somewhere in the you're somewhere in that chapter 18 or 19 of the book of Acts as Paul begins because he's writing this before he begins traveling to Jerusalem when Paul begins traveling to Jerusalem which would be within a year or two, he's going to say this. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That had to be fun for the elders of those churches to hear, didn't it? Like, I'm leaving, and some of you people (laughs) are going to lead the church astray. There's no precedent in your New Testament for any of them to sit there and go, Is it me, Paul? (laughs) Is it me, Paul? Not I, Paul. It wouldn't possibly, you know, because that's basically what they did to Jesus. And by the way, that's not the only place this happens. Within a few years, Jude is going to write about what? the savage wolves that have come in who are leading people astray. He wants to write something encouraging, but he can't. Why? Because he has to write to you to defend the gospel. Peter, in 2 Peter, warns about the false teachers that come in. 2 and 3 John, which would be about 35 years after the book of Romans, has to warn about what? The false teachers that have entered in, the people that have done harm to the church, the difficulties that they have brought, the false teachings that are... I mean, it's constant... No sooner, no sooner is Paul, I mean, we did this last week with Galatians. Paul comes in, founds the church in Galatia, leaves, the heretics come in. Paul has to come back through, explain how they're heretics, leaves, the heretics come back in, comes with a letter from Jerusalem explaining how the heretics are heretics. It kicks them all out, leaves, the heretics come back in so that Paul has to write another letter and be like, what are you people doing? You're making me crazy. I mean, no sooner are the apostles dead, Gnosticism pops up. No sooner is one form of Gnosticism cast out of the church than another form of Gnosticism pops up. No sooner do they get rid of that that somebody else goes, well, did Jesus really have a body? Yes, you nitwit, it's right here. Well, is Jesus really God? Yes, it's right here. And welcome to the next three centuries of the church. It's like, it's constant. Hippolytus is an elder in the church in the third century? 270s, I think. Do not quote me on that, please. Um, Writes a book entitled Refutation of All Heresies. (laughs) 
<laughs> he was an ambitious fellow. It's 10 volumes. Like, be honest. Shouldn't that book be like a page and a half? Like, read your Bible. It'll do you good. We're done here. No, he's got to write 10 volumes. Why? Because by the middle of the third century, within 150 years of the apostles being gone, there are enough heresies that have cropped up that he's got to write war and peace to tell you how they're all going to hell and you are too if you follow them. It's like, this shouldn't be like this. And there's so many problems that... There's another guy writing before him, Irenaeus, who writes a similar book that's against all heresies, and he's got ones that Hippolytus doesn't even have. Oh my goodness, people. Again, I need my R.C. Sproul button where R.C. Sproul goes, what is wrong with you people? That's, that's the human world. And no sooner do we write a refutation of all of those heresies, I guess what happens? There's more, and then there's others, and then somebody else shows up and goes, well, you know that one that we got rid of 200 years ago? How about no? And then a few centuries go by, and somebody goes, hey, remember that heresy from like 800 years ago? I think he had a point. No. And over and over and over and over again. This is why Paul is eager, because this is what the world does. I mean, great modern example is Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses come out of nowhere in the early 20th century, they are just a repackaging of the Arian heresy that was declared declared heresy by the Council of Nicaea in 325. Imagine showing up in like 1915 and being like, hey, I got an idea. No, you don't. You just rehashed that from 1600 years ago. Back of the line. I mean, this is what the world does. This is what the world has always done. This is why the apostolic teaching is so important. By the way, Christian, this is why the apostolic teaching is given to you and preserved in a manner that is objective. And this is part of the, part of the reason why I'm so encouraging about how you build your foundations. If you don't have a Bible verse to justify what you're doing and how you're living that way, you know what you better do real fast? One of two things. Either change what you're doing and why you're doing it, or better find a Bible verse. Because <laughs> that's the foundation. That's the objective standard. I can live with a lot of things. I can live with people disagreeing with me. What I can't live with is when you simply, as a Christian, go, no, 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 I just feel like it. Excuse me? That's not the standard for living. That's not the standard for how we do and what we do. You can give me, I know it's wrong, but. Okay, you know what? That's a starting point. Because you know what you started with? I know because you know that there's a foundation that you have broken that is cracked and you're not living in alignment. We can work on that. When you go, no, 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 I don't have anything and I don't care. That's a bigger problem because how much of your life should be built upon Christ? All of it. Otherwise, what happens to the savage wolves? Or what happens with the savage wolves? Yeah. I mean, you... How many times they made this movie? They've made like three of these movies. You have the plane crash in Alaska, right? Why do you have to build big, massive fire? Because if you get too far away from the fire in the middle of Alaska, what happens in the, bad, in the bad, scary movie? The savage wolves do what to you? Yeah, they go dragging you off, right? And everybody's huddled around the fireplace going, I hope I don't get eaten next. Ah! You know, and somebody gets drug off and they got to scream. And then you get the, the story trope of horror movies. Because there's always one like 90-pound woman who's going to fight everybody off. Have you ever noticed? It is! Have you seen a horror film in the last 40 years? It's some 5'2 blonde woman. She weighs about 84 pounds soaking wet, and she's like, I'm going to beat him up. Yeah, because the 240-pound guy, you know, who was a linebacker in college, he, he gets, like, choke slammed and killed, and you're going to win the fight. Yeah, sure, Hollywood, whatever. I'm not bitter or upset or anything about this. <laughs> but this is the warning. That's why, that's why horror movie logic is so stupidly flawed, because everybody's like, let's split up. 
If you're in the horror movie, what's your answer to that? No, because common sense and biblical wisdom tells you what? That a strand of three cords is not easily broken. That there's strength in numbers. That I don't go things alone. That splitting up is the dumbest thing we can do. And that's always how Scooby and Shaggy get caught. Because they're on their own away from the rest of the group, right? See, if you've seen the cartoon, that's, let's split up. Ah, there's the bad guy, run! <laughs> the same thing holds true in your world. This is, again, why Christian fellowship is important. This is, again, why back to the beginning, defining who your people are is important and understanding who your people are, why they are your people, and why that matters and why you should care because there's a protection in that. There is not a lone wolf chasing you around. Well, I take the back. There's a lone wolf chasing you around, but you're not getting caught because you're not away from the pack. Have you ever seen the, the, here, bad, another bad example? You ever seen the nature documentaries from Africa? There's like 25 lions prowling around. They go after the big, strong-willed beast in the middle of the pack, right? No, they go after the little one on the outside who's too slow to keep up with the bum leg. Hey, we'll go eat that one. And as soon as they take a bite out of it, all the rest of the wildebeest say what? Sorry, bud. Better you than me. See ya. <laughs> you don't lag behind. You don't go it alone because that's where the savage wolves are. That's where sin easily entangles. That's where the lie of the world starts making sense. That's where the foundation gets broken. That is, again, why I say when you look at me and say, I know it's wrong, but good. We have something to build on. We have some place to move forward. We can actually fend off the wolves because we can repair the foundation and then you will know and live rightly because that's the hope. That's one of the reasons Paul wants to go. This is coming for who? Everyone. This is the world. You don't get to look at the world and be like, no, 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 I'm out. We're not, we're not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to go, you know, going to go live in a cave in the mountains. That'll be fine. I mean, one of my favorite lines about this, the History Channel did a whole show about these guys. You know, they just go live off in the mountains by themselves and have, have weird trade. Remember one of those guys got in trouble. Why? He didn't pay his property taxes. <laughs> Imagine, like, I'm going to go live off on a mountain by myself. And the government's like, yeah, it's a nice mountain you got right there. It'd be a shame if somebody repossessed it on you. <laughs> there is no escape from the things of the world. You're stuck dealing with them. So deal with them rightly with a rightly built foundation. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you shouldn't be. There's no shame when you're standing with God. 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, for I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, let's be honest. Your prayer life, how is it when things in your world are going great? Kids are doing well. They're getting good grades. Work is nice. She's got a promotion. All the bills are being paid on time. Everything's awesome. How's your prayer life? Now, get somebody sick. Lose a job. What happens to your prayer life? Whee! Now, look, that doesn't make you a bad person. That makes you a human being. But recognize, that's when you're at your best. You're not at your best when you are killing life and doing wonderful. You are at your best when you are at your most broken. Because when you are at your most broken, you recognize that I need help. What's one of the foundational principles of this book? God runs and rules everything that includes you in good times and in bad times. Always remember that. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yes, 
Because that's the only place you're going to find any power is when you actually are operating in God. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's where your rest is. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because again, that, encom- that encompasses who? That's everybody. That's to humanity. You're either Jew or Gentile. Another word for Gentile would be Greek. And by the way, Christian, that's you. You are part of the people of God because of the work of Christ. Paul will say later on in Romans, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is done in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, why is that all true? Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? Just out of morbid curiosity, well, go to what Paul has already written, things like Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And what does Jesus do? 1 John 2 gives you a good summation. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Do I have to do propitiation again, since I did it like three times last week? The turning away of wrath, that's all I'm going to mention about it. The righteousness of God is revealed because he didn't just ignore your sin, he actually paid a penalty for your sin. He actually supplies you with righteousness. You don't coast in and go, hey, I think I can make it because, no, no, no. Christ has paid my penalty. There is no wrath due to me. And not only that, Christ has gifted me his righteousness. So I have standing. Therefore, the righteousness of God is revealed because he has not been unjust, but he has justly punished sin and he has justly allowed the righteous into his courts. How? From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And this is the truth that has been built upon again because New Testament ideas are built upon... Old Testament ideas. Habakkuk 2. Great book. One we went through a while back. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The righteous will live by faith. You see this going all the way back to the beginning. You see this in things like Genesis 4. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. God covers their nakedness with the animal that he has sacrificed. Abel shows up. Oh, look, what are we longing for? We're longing for Genesis 3.15, the son from the woman. Here's Abel, a son who came from who? Came out of a woman. This might be the guy. And then we have Cain. Or not Cain. I'm sorry, I said Abel. I I meant Cain. We have Cain. Then you get Abel. And, you know, unfortunately, Cain's not the guy because he kills Abel. And Abel's not the guy because he's dead. (laughs) But to prove that God doesn't forget his promises, Seth shows up. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain has killed him. To Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see right there, chapter 4 leading into chapter 5, that faithful family. Why? Because they are a family of faith, because they're longing for a promise to be revealed. One of these sons is going to be it, one of these times. Which one? I don't know. What are we going to do in the meantime? Trust that what God has promised, he will deliver. 
And that's where we rest. And by the way, we would be resting in really good company because we'd be resting with Paul in places like Philippians 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because it's the foundation that's been built. It's the reality of the life that is lived. It is the hope to which we cling in the way that we enter into this world. Christian, when I tell you to kill the sin, to solidify your foundation, and to not have your entire life be built as the pagans, I'm not telling you to give up a thing. I'm telling you to give up that which is going to be burned, that which is going to be judged, and that which is going to be cast away. Because I can promise you that there is a better thing, because there is a better way, because it is what God has promised in Christ. And you are built on a better foundation, a city whose builder is not man, but it is God in eternity. That's what Paul wants for the Romans. Unfortunately, it's not what the world wants, and that's what Paul will continue on next week. And we're going to have real fun with that. But in the meantime, we can rejoice, because whatever's coming for them, we don't have to worry. And we can proclaim his goodness and his righteousness and his mercy. And we can build our lives upon it because it is what he has promised, because it is what he has given to his people. Let's pray.